Here we are. This is the third installment of the Matt Drake series, Hostile Intent. So can you tell our audience, what kind of shenanigans is inside this latest novel of yours? Yeah, so it's this really far-fetched scenario in which Russia invades Ukraine. So who would have thought that would happen uh, a year ago when no I was writing this book? <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it really was a, kind of a fascinating topic. It was something, so the book um, takes place, the first portion of it in Vienna. And um, during my time in the military, I got to, my last assignment was in Germany. And so once you're in Europe, it's really easy to, to travel around Europe. And so the guy in the cubicle next to me said, I want to run a marathon, run one with me. And he, he suckered me into doing that. And, and we did it in Vienna, which is an incredible city. Uh, better if you do not run a marathon there because you can actually walk and see the sights afterwards. But um, I knew I wanted to do Vienna. I knew this is the third book and, and there were some kind of lingering questions and stuff from the other two. And, and one of my favorite writers is Daniel Silva and he does a lot where he will do trilogies or or um, two books at a time that deal with a certain topic and so I wanted Hostile Intent to be able to kind of still stand on the alone, alone like all the other Matt Drake books but also kind of answer some questions and wrap up the first three books and then I really wanted to look more I've done uh, with the first two books focused more on a Middle East um, area of operations I really wanted to do something in Europe and thought man wouldn't it be interesting to see uh, the Russian invasion of um, Ukraine from a whole bunch of different viewpoints? And so that's the other thing that's kind of fun about Hostile Intent is it's a much bigger um, book than what I've written before. It's much more, still has kind of the espionage uh, feel to it where you get to see Matt doing some um, handling stuff and running assets, but it also has more of a military, kind of an epic military thriller feel to it. Um, kind of like Red Storm Rising, or when I was a kid, it was, um, you know, Team Yankee and and books like that that I loved back then that wa I wanted to try my hand at a little bit for Hostile Intent. Well, you bring up a good point. Uh, Vienna is, in my opinion, arguably the most beautiful city in the world. I mean, mm -hmm. it is just stunning. And there's so many things to see as a tourist. Um, and, and you described that in Hostile Intent early on in the, in the book. Yeah. Um, and you also describe how it's a hub of intelligence types working throughout Europe. So mm -hmm. was that description for the sake of the story or do you have some insight as to how the intelligence community is still in that environment in the real world? Yeah. So it was, it was pretty fascinating in, in my research. I didn't know that at the time when I was in Germany and went to Vienna, I had no idea it had, it was also, you know, it's the city of music and it's also called the city of spies. Mm. Um, but I, I, as the more research I did and, and, and talk to folks or whatever you, you get to understand the importance of Vienna, both during the Cold War, that it was kind of ground zero for East and West. And then even still today, there's some figure where, where supposedly at any given time, there's 7,000 spies in Vienna uh, flying their craft. And so it's this really um, cool dynamic where on one hand, it's like you said, it's one of Europe's most beautiful cities known for coffee and chocolate and Mozart. And the other hand, it's also known for for ne'er-do-wells skulking in the shadows <laughs> with their cloaks and daggers. And I'm like, this is a really cool place to set a book. And, and like I said, when we did the marathon there, my kids were super young. And uh, I, I, we, we got there in time to do some sightseeing in the beginning. And then after, the, it was my first marathon and I was not properly trained. And so <laughs> I was basically like lying flat on this table. When I got done with the marathon, there was a table for water and 
this chain link fence that separated me from my wife. And so I was trying to talk to her and I could barely stand up. And I took, went over to the water table and just pushed everything off the table and laid on it like this for a little while. So there wasn't so much sightseeing afterwards, but there were some really, really cool things like the park in Vienna with the big Ferris wheel, the things that we mean ahead of time. I got to find a way to throw that in the book. Yeah, sure. Well, Don, our mutual friend, New York Times bestselling author, Brad Taylor has, a, has said, the problem with writing current events is that they're current. Um, and as I turned the pages in Hostile Intent, I kept going back to that. And I wondered how beyond, beyond the horror of watching these awful events transpire, yeah. if you had a lot of anxiety about how close reality was traversing to your plot. Yeah, it really is. A, it was a surreal feeling because at, at, at one point you're 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 looking at it and you're like, man, I can't believe this is unfolding. And mm -hmm. then you're looking at it and you're like, I was pretty close to a bunch of the things that that happened. And then and, and so it was this crazy dynamic. But what I tell folks, one of the things um, that I think being a military officer really brings to the writing process, especially if you write these kind of books, is within the military um, at the battalion level and then at the at every higher command above that, there are a series of staff officers and they're called the S offices. So the S3 is the operations. The S2 is the intelligence officer. And so when you're gonna go do a big um, operation, like when we were gonna go do a deep attack or a movement to contact or, or a zone reconnaissance, you would, all the commanders would come and, and their lieutenants would come to a map board. And it would literally be this terrain um, board that the S3 shop had dug out of the dirt and, and, and made into mountains and valleys and put string there and rocks and painted it. And so the commanders would walk through the actual board and talk about what they were going to do, their task and purpose for, for them and their subordinate units. Well, on the other side of the board is the S2, who up until that point, served as the intelligence officer and said, here's what to expect from enemy disposition. Here's the enemy strength. Well, when the rehearsal starts, what the S2 becomes is the enemy commander. And so he or she walks on the opposite side of the board and says, okay, as you do this, here is what my first echelon um, forces are going to do. Here's how they're going to be arrayed. Here's what their task and purpose is going to be. And so it very much gives you the ability to kind of crawl into the enemy's head and figure out what he or she is thinking. And so that's a very, very useful skill to have when you write in this genre. And so for the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there were a lot of condition setting things um, that I do in hostile intent, some of which actually came to fruition and some of them didn't, that I looked at past things either the Russians had done in Georgia or the last time they went into um, Crimea and the Donbass area or things that even all the way back to, to the way that Putin had staged the Chechen wars. And so I pulled a lot of that in and said, okay, here is how, if I were the Russians, I would invade Ukraine. And then I took that and said, now what's the best way to tell this story? What would be the coolest way to experience all of that? And so that's another thing you get in hostile intent. That's a little bit different from the previous book, the outside man is there are a whole bunch of different point of view characters that you get to experience this story uh, through the eyes of. Mm. Well, let's go a little bit deeper into the book here. Um, we see the appearance of this mysterious blonde woman and she, and she, Oh, Don, you okay there? <laughs> little mosquito going on here. I got it. I got it. We, we didn't see any of that. Um, so we see this mysterious kind of blonde woman 
kind of. She is a blonde woman who suddenly holds <laughs> sway over the local police, and, but she isn't a cop. And Drake yeah. assesses her as she's likely Austrian BVT. So for our audience, can you give a little more uh, background on what that organization is and where her character came in for your, from your planning? Sure. So when I was looking at the Austrian um, country and their intelligence service, there's some really interesting things and in kind of the overlay between or the interchange between um, their intelligence service and their police force. And like a lot of so the United States is very unique in a number of different ways, one of those being um, posse comitatus, which which states that the U.S. military is not allowed to operate on U.S. soil in an armed capacity. So you can't you can't take and that's not the same as our neighbors. So, for instance, um, the Canadians don't have the equivalent of the FBI HRT because their constitution doesn't forbid them necessarily from using military units in that capacity, mm -hmm. where in the United States, Delta Force could never go respond to a terrorist organ, you know, incident in the continental United States because of posse comitatus. And that's right. why uh, the FBI HRT is there. And so in the same way, there's also divisions in the state between police force and intelligence and, and foreign and domestic intelligence services. In Austria, as I was looking at it, I, I was looking both at um, from that perspective. And then also there were some articles I was reading about problems they had had with their intelligence service, specifically as it looked to um, to potentially far, far right candidates and movements, kind of the neo-Nazis is the wrong word, but that kind mm -hmm. of effort where they're saying, hey, there might be within our intelligence service, it looks like there are folks who are potentially um, potentially biased towards this. And so, you know, how do we root this out? And so a lot of different fascinating things. And so I, I took all of that and said, wouldn't it be interesting to have um, this BVT uh, a, a lady on there, a, a spy who ha is kind of handcuffed and is looking at Matt as maybe a potential solution to uh, the handcuffs that, that that she's wearing. And so that's that's kind of that character and how she came about. Mm, okay. So Don, one of my favorite aspects of this series and or this book and all your novels is the interplay between the military branches, the agencies, the other government entities, both foreign and domestic. Um, I think you do a hell of a job of mining the humor and the drama in those interactions. So my question is this, does it, do you think it comes a little more naturally to you since you have looked at situations through the lens of the military, through the lens of the Bureau and through the lens of SWAT? Does, does that, do you think, sort of make those interplays natural for you? Yeah, I think, I think, um, and I, I apologize if I told you all this story before, but when um, Without Sanction, my debut came out, um, one of the, the folks that was interviewing me on the radio said, are you Matt Drake? You know, automatically, <laughs> are you Matt Drake? And I'm like, I am absolutely not Matt Drake, but I have stood in the same room with him. And so to me that what I've gotten to do and who I've, I've been able to rub shoulders with still certainly gives you or has given me a unique perspective on kind of how these things um, go together. Certainly, there are times when I induce more friction in the process than, <laughs> than there is in real life. But I also say, I remember, I can't remember if he said this in an interview too, but one of the times Brad and Taylor and I were talking he said, you know, if we were doing this for real life, what would happen is you'd brief a thousand PowerPoint slides and they'd never authorize the mission. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, that's, that is probably how it actually rolls. 
but it is it is funny when you can see behind the curtain and see how and that's and that's one of the reasons why I chose to make Matt an employee of the Defense Intelligence Agency because there is all of that built-in conflict between um, the DIA and CIA who have very similar mission sets and are scrambling over the same turf and and in some ways for for the same funding and so that's part of what makes a great book book or story is when things go wrong and those things can be uh, major 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 plot points major things where the antagonist is is taking the train off the tracks or it can be the small frictions of day-to-day bureaucracies not playing nice with each other and those having cascading effects and that i think is very much unfortunately true to real life <laughs> well speaking of interplay matt drake and, and mr murphy seem to kind of go together like peanut butter and jelly um and you can't have one without the other so knowing you it seems like you almost take a bit of uh, a little extra enjoyment and kind of screwing with him when these scenarios come up when you know the plans go out the window at, at the first contact and it seems like mm-hmm. every instance where he's getting ready to have something major murphy just pops up and screws with the whole thing so how much time do you spend actually thinking about what the next step is and then taking stepping back and say, how can I really screw this guy royally right here? Yeah, that's a great question, both from a, um, from a story perspective and from a craft perspective, I think one of the things, so there's um, one of the, one of the books that was super influential in, in um, for me as a, as a writer was Donald Moss's book. That was um, not, it wasn't, it was writing the breakout novel. And then he mm-hmm. wrote, um, putting the fire in fiction afterwards. And so he talked about in both of those books, I think maybe it was writing the breakout novel, having um, micro tension. And so one of the things that you are, when you're, when you're writing a story, there are two things that are always in conflict. So the first is you're trying to tell a story. And as you're telling it the first time, what you want to do is tell that story in as linear fashion as possible. So this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, mm-hmm. because what you're doing is telling yourself the story and trying to get it down on paper. The other part that's in tension with that is that that makes for a very boring story and that if everything goes right along these facts, conflict and tension is what drives the story. And that happens when things go wrong. And so what you have to do as a writer, I think, is, is figure out what's that first um, through line, what's the first, here's how the story actually goes, and then you have to go back and say, how do I make it harder on my main character? And Stephen James has a great book, Story Trump's um, Structure, where he talks about that. Here's yeah. how you continually raise the stakes. And so that can be something major that you know your your guys are, are kicking in a door to find a bad guy and and she's not there or something minor that they can't find the car keys right but right. each of those are things that drive the story in one way or another and so it's it's something i think you have to make conscious choices about as an author but at the same time you also can't get to the point where the reader's like okay this dude can't even open the front door because it's jammed or something right it has to still serve the story and and further it without distracting the reader so it's it's definitely a balancing act well sean's uh having technical difficulties so let's uh, continue on here um sure the, the the strength of your series well no surprise to me it's incredibly compelling and, and everybody loves matt drake Thank for you. for his 
positives and 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 maybe his down you know pitfalls. Yeah. And so you teased a possible development with regard to Matt in hostile intent. Can we talk about that, or is that a little spoilerish? Um, if you're talking about the end, that's a little spoilerish. Yeah. All right. So when did you realize this? Well. Okay, it's it's spoilerish. I'm I'm trying. I guess I was trying to work, talk around yeah. it, and I don't want to. I think I think I know what you're. I I think. Let me see if I can do this without uh without giving it away. I th I think um or I know one of my favorite writers is Daniel Silva, and yeah. and what one of the many things he does so well is is his characters actually change across the course of his series, and so. When the kill artist starts, you know, Gabriel Alon, his his iconic protagonist, is um, is painting pictures or copying or restoring pictures in this little college cottage on the English coast. And however many, I can't even remember, he's I think he's up to 17 or something books later, his his still iconic protagonist now has a wife and two children and is the director of the Mossad. And so there's certainly a balance to that because there's a reason why your your readers get invested in the characters and the way that they do. But I think also one of the ways that you as a writer keep from just phoning it in from book to book is you have to let your characters grow and change as a part of that story. And so that's certainly something I'm trying to figure out how to do. Yeah. All right. Excellent job, by the way. <laughs> um, some authors have the storyline mapped out for their series, you know, you know, look like Jack Carr and he's got 10 books mm -hmm. out here. Right. Yep. And then some, yep. some are like little individual snippets. So where do you fall in, in your own process in terms of how far are you thinking about Matt Drake's experiences versus at what point do you let one book kind of help direct you into the next phase of, of kind of his growth? Yeah. So from, uh, from a series perspective, I'm really not um, planning books out and thinking, you know, eight books down the road, here's where I want him to be. I think I default back to, again, what Stephen James said is that is that in addition to raising the stakes, and he's talking about the book, but I think this applies to the series as well. And in addition to figuring out how to make things more difficult for your main character from chapter to chapter, what you also look at is what are the questions that you've raised in the previous chapters that haven't right. been answered yet. And so if you pull that out and look at it from a series perspective, when I sat down to write Hostile Intent, there were a couple of things that I knew. I knew I wanted to be in Vienna. I actually didn't know that it was going to be a, a, about a Russian invasion of the Ukraine at first. And in fact, I was going to go a completely different direction and in about midway through the book realized um, where it needed to go. But I also knew that there were a number of questions from the first and second book that hadn't been answered yet. And I mm -hmm. felt that if I didn't address those as, as the author, sooner or later, they would become not relevant anymore. And people right. would forget about them and say, what, who even knows what happened two books ago? And so from a, from a planning the series out, that's kind of how I work is I want my rules are I want my characters to develop and change over time. And I want the reader to go back and say, okay, I remember when this was important and without mm -hmm. sanction and Bentley's now brought that to a conclusion in hostile intent. And so that was, that was deliberate, but I certainly don't have um, now that I'm writing the fourth Matt book that's called forgotten war. I don't have the, here's what the fifth is going to be, or here's what the sixth is going to be. I just, 
I just try and, like I said, write the best book I can in that moment and have faith that there will be some unanswered questions that I can build upon for the next one. Right, right, right. Okay. Well, so far, so damn good, my friend. Um, <laughs> I want to revisit the current events that overlap with the geopolitics of hostile intent. Um, it, yeah. seems like we all, it seems like we all had a notion of Russia's military capabilities that, at least to this point, seems to mm-hmm. have painted them as more formidable than the reality. And, and, and I don't mean that they're not formidable, but whether it's yeah. substandard training, the sometimes dated or poorly maintained equipment, or mm-hmm. the horrible logistics planning that looks like a goat rodeo um have given the fact that you're familiar with the the area and you did some research for this book are you have you been surprised by what you witnessed in real life yeah i have been but i think and and everybody i think can can from their armchair say oh no we should have known that we should have realized what was happening but if you looked at what russia had done up until now so if you look at the georgia campaign if you look at um, what they did the first time they invaded Ukraine, and honestly, if you look what you what they um, did in Syria as part of um, supporting Assad, all of those things were were fairly well done. And so, from a, from a you know an, an an analysis of their capabilities and stuff, I was certainly on board with everybody else who said they are going to be a, a very formidable force. And I I would add the giant caveat that they would still be a very formidable force were it not for the incredible spirit of the Ukrainian people, which is something I didn't address at my book and and had no idea. um, And I got completely wrong. And so, you know, one of the, one of the more, and there've been a gazillion haunting images um, on YouTube that you can watch, but one of the ones that sticks with me is watching an armored column, a Russian armored column come into a Ukrainian city and you see some BMPs and, and BTRs and maybe a, T-72 and it's at night and all of a sudden it looks like the middle of a meteor shower because there are so many Molotov cocktails that are coming <laughs> and hitting these and, and these are just being thrown by average citizens. They're not, they're not, you know, soft folks. They aren't amazing soldiers. They're average Ukrainians who are willing to fight in a way that frankly we haven't seen for quite some time. And so that I think is the big thing that maybe we all missed and isn't enough credit given to because I think what the Russians did in, in Syria, you know, facing that kind of enemy, I think they would probably have similar success in many other countries right. who weren't like the Ukraine, where again, another iconic image is men taking their wives and kids, dropping them off at the border with Poland and then coming back into Ukraine to continue the fight. That hasn't, we have not seen that level of commitment in a very long time. And the human spirit just goes to show you will prevail. I think, you know, in most instances, because it's the desire you've got people who don't want to be there trying to defeat the people who don't want you there in in such a powerful way. Um, Yeah. let, Let me talk about your, larger career for one second here we're not just a matt drake you know prodigy here you're also writing the clancy novels and you've got another book coming out uh geez what another four weeks or so something like that mm-hmm. um, yep. what's gotten easier since you started writing full-time last year and what's maybe even a little bit more difficult uh as you've progressed now in, in, in kind of your new career as a full-time author yeah, so one of the first times I saw Brad Taylor on a panel was at Thriller Fest, and early in his career, 
he was writing, writing two books a year and a novella between the two. And so somebody asked him, um, Hey, do you ever get writer's block or do you ever, um, did you ever get to the point where you realized the plot you were working on didn't work and you had to scrap the entire book? And, and his answer was, was very profound. And he's like, no, I didn't have time for that. And so there's, there's an aspect to it of when you're on a schedule and you're delivering something, you say, this is what I think it is. And you go full bore into that because you don't have time to second guess yourself. And so I think some of the things I've gotten better at is, is trusting my instincts and knowing that even though there are holes in this book, I'm, I'm at, uh, Tom Colgan, in case you're watching, I'm at 90,000 words in, uh, in Forgotten War, which is the next book I have to turn in. And there are major things I still haven't figured out in that book, major things. But I know that once I get through that first draft and, and what I do in my mind, what I do very good at are these action set pieces, I'll go back and figure out how they connect together or what I'm missing for. Yeah. And so that perspective of, of saying, hey, you, you are good enough to do this. You've done it before. You can continue to do that. Just believe that the first draft that you're busily comparing to the finished copy of your last book, it's not a great comparison yet, but it will get there. Yeah. That I think I've gotten uh, maybe better at. And, and the way that I can quantify that is I, is I cut a whole lot less when I go from my first draft to my second draft than I did before. Um, the thing I think that is harder is you start to, as a writer, um, get a reputation for doing certain things. And so um, Hostile Intent is the biggest book I've ever written and, and had the biggest climax and most complex climax I'd ever written until I wrote Zero Hour. And that one actually is, is probably twice as big and twice as complex. And so when I was talking with Tom Colgan about it and, the and I said Colgan. the Tom Colgan about it <laughs> and he said that's just what you do you write you make these hugely climactic um endings that's just what you do that's a Bentley book and I was like oh that's pretty cool and then <laughs> when I'm looking at the book I'm writing now I'm like huh is this big enough is there enough craziness here is it do I have to be now half again as bigger as what zero hour was I'm running out of things to blow up if that's the case, you know what I mean? And so from that perspective, I think it's, it's, um, it's figuring out like who you are as a writer um, without overwhelming yourself, I think in the process and saying, you know, I, how, how do I grow without, without just blowing up the death star over and over again, you know, each, each time that, that the, the new book is there. Now I'm going to blow up two Death Stars and the Millennium Falcon. And so that's that's what I think is the harder part is there are, as corny as it sounds, there are expectations now with your book and maybe they're just your own expectations where you're like, I don't know, is this really a Bentley book? Is this, is this going to be, is this going to satisfy the people who now have an expectation of yeah. what they're going to get when they pick up one of my books? Maybe you need to have a discussion with Mike Mann and find out like, you know, how many things can you blow up before you're just jumping the shark, you know? <laughs> uh, okay. Well, so zero hour is coming out uh, in a month here. Um, yep. Has Jack Jr. managed to upgrade his weapons training without that hack of a, of a teacher that he had in uh, page 137? <laughs> in that, in that and he's not even here to defend himself. That's, that's why I'm the, asking. That's the sad part. That's the sad part. <laughs> 
Jack, Jack Ryan Jr. has been really fun to write. And I don't know, uh, Brad's, Brad is uh, pretty incredible. Brad and Mark Graney are the, the two yeah. guys I probably look up to um, the most. They're both incredible writers. I don't think I could have done what Brad did and wrote two Matt books a year. You know, writing a Jack Ryan in between really gives me a chance to kind of cleanse my palate, do things a little differently. And then when I come back to a Matt book, um, it feels like coming home. And this time, though, what I'll say for Zero Hour is it was – I felt like a new Jack Ryan Jr. better. I, and after Hostile Intent, there's some couple of things I set in motion that I was able to build on with um, Zero Hour. And, and it was a ton of fun. And I, what I'll say, too, is not going too much into Zero Hours. My first duty assignment out of flight school was South Korea. And, it, and back at the time, this was the late 90s. It was before September 11th. Mm. That was the closest you had to an active combat theater. And so while they, while you still, you weren't, you know, lobbing missiles back and forth at North Korea, yeah. there were times where the peninsula got very hot. And I had always wanted to do kind of an homage to my time there and got to do that with zero hour. And so there's actually an entire sequence that's a young um, aviation lieutenant in his first platoon who uh, has to, has to um, lead his, his men and women during a second Korean war. And so what was fun about that is I got every, every, all the incredible warrant officers, all the people I flew with, and I made them all characters. Ah, and then when the, nice. when the book came out, I screenshot it and sent it to all of them. And like, you're in a Tom Clancy book. And so <laughs> that was, uh, that was a ton of fun. And I'm really, I'm really uh, anxious to see um, what folks think of zero hours. Well, because it is, yeah. it is, um, Usually the, the Jack Ryan Jr. books are much more narrowly focused on a single thing and the Jack Ryan Sr. are more global, um, right. big picture stuff. And I, and I turned that upside down a little bit. It very much is uh, a second Korean War scenario that you get to see from a whole bunch of points of view. And so I can't wow. wait for people to, to get a chance to read that one. Hmm, kind of has a red metal feel to it almost like. Uh... Yeah. A little bit, a little bit of red metal. The other one, Larry Bond wrote an incredible book, and I think it was called Red Phoenix, which red was Phoenix. yeah, um, yeah. Imagine another Korean War, and that one was hugely influential on me when when I was first starting in this genre too. Starting well, since to read, you predicted this say. Ukraine war. Are we saying that June we might want to like get out of our four hundred one k's, batten down your hatches? <laughs> it's on in Korea. Sons of bitch. <laughs> I certainly hope not, but oh, who man. can tell? Well, let's hope you're not 100% on your uh, predictions here. <laughs> well, it's just you and me. Let's do a lightning round. Let's just get this thing kicked off, man. All right. Um, it feels weird, though. I have to tell after almost three years of doing this, mano y mano, yeah. it's it, it, this uh, like my age really starting to uh, come into play here with my ability to, to hack you down here. <laughs> All right. Well, here's my first question then. Your approach to start a company designing Pearl Snap clothing. What do you call your new line of shirts? Uh, um, I feel like it should be alabaster or something, but I don't have the second word yet. <laughs> something to do with Texas. Alabaster Alamo. I don't know. Alabaster <laughs> <laughs> Alamo. The Alabaster Alamo right here. Oh, folks. man. Lone Star Alabaster. series. <laughs> <laughs> alabaster lone star i don't know you could play with those words <laughs> nice all right all right okay so number two uh, why do fighter pilots get all the girls 
That is a complete lie. It's a lie. Though, I heard that I from a reliable say, sources, Jack Stewart. I will say that the army or the navy got Tom Cruise in uh, Top Gun. Mm. The army got Nicolas Cage in Firebirds, <laughs> which I was at. That was shot at Fort Hood, and the one of the units that helped with it um, when I when I PCS to Fort Hood said that that is the movie that shall remain nameless and you're not allowed to say it within the walls of this room. So I, I, I can only attribute that rumor to Hollywood. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll debate that later. All right. Number three, <clears throat> your son chose to serve as a Marine Corps officer, proving he received his intelligence and wise decision-making from his mother. Has the inter-service rivalry started inside the Bentley household already? Yeah, so here in the South, they have what they call JROTC in high school. And so mm -hmm. they indoctrinate them early. And yes. his high school JROTC was the Marine Corps. And so when, <laughs> as a parent, you had to fill out a little permission slip and stuff like that to get him mm -hmm. to join. So I filled it out. And then I wrote, go Army, all the way across <laughs> the bottom of it. And so when I got to go to his uh, swearing, and actually, you can see my Stetson behind me. I took yeah. my Stetson with me from when I was a cavalry officer in and put it on and got pictures. But I'm like, I am not standing in front of the Marine Corps flag. You, my son, stand in front of the Marine Corps flag. So yeah, it's on like Donkey Kong. Well, hey, you know, only 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 special people can can get that honor. So I, I you probably shouldn't stand in front of it. All right. Well, it says you and me, que paso. Where's everybody else at? Congratulations on your book. Guys, thanks, man. Hostile Intent number three is coming out. We're expecting some big things because my God, you have crushed it these past couple of years. We're really proud of everything you've been able to accomplish in such a short amount of time. And try not to wear out your fingertips too much. We've got to keep you around for a little bit. Uh, and then don't forget, folks, the Clancy book will be coming out. It'll give you a chance to read this and then go get yourself the Clancy book. And it's going to be a big summer for uh, all of uh, Matt Drake fans, Clancy fans, and now Don Bentley fans. So... Uh Here's to you. Thanks pal. again, Mike. I really appreciate it. Yeah. It's uh it's good to see uh, good guys having good success. So here's mud in your eye, yeah. man. Well, thanks for sticking around, folks. It was a little technical issue situation that uh, Sean was running into. So it's just moi. And so you get a full screen of my ugly mug. Hey, uh, thanks to Don Bentley for coming on. Uh, the man is crushing it in the industry. Um, two massive series going on simultaneously. Uh, one of the best guys uh, that you'll ever meet and uh, totally deserves all the uh, respect and the admiration that he's getting through his writing. So uh, thanks for uh, him to spend a little bit of time uh, in his super busy schedule. Folks, Hostile Intent coming out soon um it's it's what you expect from don it's fantastic uh the the um uh storyline keeps getting bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger and some of the climax situations are just you know mind-bendingly good so please go out and get a hostile intent and then don't forget don's got a new tom clancy uh, novel coming out <clears throat> a month after hostile intent and uh keeping his fans happy with all that great material and so I'm going to uh, toast out, ding, and uh, cheers to everybody. We'll catch you a little later. And out.